Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a business executive who is using the power of AI and robotics to transform e-commerce. Digital twins let you de-risk what you would otherwise do in the physical world with robotics and let you learn in the digital world first. And when you connect machine learning to digital twins, that lets you find ways to optimize and solve that digital world that humans can't come up with. That was Paul Clark, Chief Technology Officer at the online grocery retailer Ocado. He came into the EFT studio to talk to me about his ambition to take Ocado's innovations beyond the world of e-commerce. Let's start at Ocado. I mean, everyone will associate it with grocery delivery, the vans that they say you're going around the street and your delivery people. Have you always had the intention to evolve into this extraordinary technology company or has it just been something that has naturally evolved? Our founding vision, although I wasn't there right at the start, I joined in 2006, the founding vision was very definitely to use technology and automation to do online grocery scalably, sustainably and profitably. And that is a decidedly non-trivial thing to do because with an average item price of £2, there's only about 60 pence to pay from everything from getting the products in, storing them, picking, packing and getting them to our customers in these one-hour slots. And the only way you can do that is through technology and automation. So we had this vision for that, which was around huge automated warehouses. And that's what we've been evolving over the last 18 years. But it was also part of the founding vision that once we'd done that for ourselves, that we would then make it available to other retailers, which is, of course, what we're now doing as well. So it really has been around from the start. I suppose it was an inevitable consequence of that, that we would build it ourselves, because as a disruptor, you know, there was no off-the-shelf solution or template for that. What we had to do was often beg, borrow and steal the hardware from other industries to using it for purposes it was never intended. But the software, we have always written ourselves from the ground upwards. Now, of course, we're building the robots too. So now we're building the hardware as well as the software. Over the years, I think it's fair to say the Financial Times has been really very rude about Ocado. And I think we called you Webvan 2.0. And I think that what we missed was that you weren't just a grocery delivery business. You were creating this core proprietary technology, which was then creating a kind of new business within that business. Is that right? I think that's true. I think one of the other things you have to get used to if you work for Ocado is the fact that we are professionally misunderstood. And I think one of the myths around Ocado is around profitability and the fact that what we've always focused on is being profitable at an order contribution level. We've just chosen not to turn that really into as big a year-end profit as we could because we wanted to invest in building that platform for the future. So that's probably an important part in that. But also... Yes, you're right. We've been on this journey of evolving technologies, but it's the competencies that are the really important bit because they take time to acquire, typically. They act as a source of competitive advantage because they're not easily displaced. And once you've acquired them, you can use them all over the shop. So once you've learned how to do natural language processing, maybe to allow your customers to order with voice, you can also use it maybe in your call center, or you can use it to allow you to talk to a robot and things like this. So that's the shopping trip, if you like, that really we've been on over this 18 years. And we've obviously amassed a very large engineering team to do that, much greater than you would expect in a retailer of our size. Do you think the stock market has re-rated you as a technology company now? Your market cap's over 8 billion or so. Have they got that story? 
I don't think there's any question that we're now valued as a technology stock. Absolutely. I think that's been true for quite a while now. And definitely going forwards, you know, I firmly believe, maybe you'd expect that as the CTO, that that is where our long-term value resides. But it's also worth saying that I think what has got us to where we are is being this duality of a retailer and a technology company because we can learn from our customers what they want. We can help drive a lot of the innovation from that. We then obviously add a lot of the innovation at the technical side and we then put that technology back into harm's way with our own businesses. And that also means that we can have a risk appetite there that is higher than obviously we can in our platform business, but obviously that you could as a technology company if you were just selling the technology because the more that we can learn now before we start photocopying these warehouses at scale around the world, the better it will be. And that's really the game that we're in. All right, let's talk about robotics because you employ a vast army of robots who are kind of picking and packing all the groceries in your warehouses. How is that revolution developing? In what other areas are you using that robotic expertise? So at the core of that are these swarms of thousands of robots that don't actually do the picking and packing. They bring the bins of groceries to pick stations where a human and soon a combination of humans and robots do the picking and packing. So a big area of focus at the moment is how to do this picking and packing of 50,000 different products with multiple different form factors and characteristics, which means that it's a significantly difficult challenge, especially as we're packing them into carrier bags where you have to worry about the 3D orientation of the products, you know, what sits on top of what, what's in there already, and very different from putting a windscreen in a vehicle or spray painting a car. You know, this is all about how these robots and the machine learning and the vision systems behind them have to make these kind of smart decisions on the fly. And that's what differentiates it, plus the fact that since you and I were babies, we've been learning strategies about how to interact with the physical world, particularly about how we pick things up and manipulate objects. And when you now want to pick up a wine bottle, you know, you know, uh, based on what you're going to do with it, how you should grasp it and what its physicality is and the weight distribution. Of course, robots know none of those strategies. So they need to be given a way to either learn them or be taught them in advance so that they can take them off the shelf when needed in real time because they don't have time to learn about how to do those things when it comes to actually picking an individual order. So all of those have to be learnt beforehand. And where do you think robots are going to be applied in the future? What are the most promising areas of investment and application? So we're very interested in the whole area of autonomous vehicles, which is obviously another form of robot, both land-based and ultimately air-based in terms of drones. But the land-based is the current main focus, although we do have projects undergoing with drones. And the future of mobility and smart cities and communities is a complex one. Lots of challenging technologies, lots of different stakeholders to manage, massive complexities to manage, you know, all sorts of regulatory and safety challenges, questions around public perception and adoption. So what we want to do here is accelerate the learning by creating a living lab to look at this intersection of drones and autonomous vehicles, robots, which we think will play an important part, and then also the smart infrastructure and smart services around it in order to accelerate this learning in a more constrained but still real life situation. So what we want to do is effectively turn our business park in Hatfield initially into a living lab. But what differentiates a living lab from a technology demonstrator is it's about learning by doing with real services to real customers. And the great thing about real customers is they tell you how you're doing and they keep you honest. And therefore, that's important. And we're in the process of 
forming a consortium to get that off the ground. And then the idea is to scale that both to a county level and ultimately then to work with others around the country who hopefully will do the same in order to create a family of these living labs. And it isn't just about mobility. It's also about other aspects of smart cities, including things like how we can provide care to the elderly, how we can manage these kind of smart environments, as I say, at a business park or county level. But there's a lot to learn if we're going to be successful at turning our cities into smart cities especially since it's not about building new ones from scratch. It's about how you retrofit these kinds of technologies to the likes of London with all of its medieval streets. Can you talk a bit more about how you see that vision evolving? Because, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing that you're talking about. A network of living labs are almost creating a virtual infrastructure for the 21st century, aren't they? It's going to be step by step. As always, it's about, you know, think big and start small. And so we're going to take you know, baby steps. That's why we want to start at a business part level. We have a roadmap of how we will start initially delivering to ourselves because, for instance, on this business park, we have, you know, a hospital, we've got a university, we've got a school, we've got the BT Engineering Hub, we've got Ocado's head office, we've got one of our first warehouses. And that creates a kind of a rich ecosystem, along with all the other companies that are on that business park, in order to explore areas like new business models for how you do the last mile, which is also relevant, if you like, upstream to the supply chains too. Because if we don't find those, which are potentially both cross-sector and cross-competitor, there's a real danger that what the future will hold is lots of half-empty autonomous vehicles clogging up streets. And that's not going to be a good outcome. So I think we need to find ways to make better use of the resources, whether it be time, land, energy, transportation, network bandwidth. And that's what we want to explore. But it is about starting with delivering groceries to ourselves autonomously, then to other people, and then widening out. It's not just about what we'll do. It's about how other companies move what we would say, atoms around the park, including in the future human atoms. So i.e. it's about mixed mode kind of vehicles that are carrying both goods and people. And then once we've learned what we need to learn at a business park level, we'll start going outside the boundaries of the park into the wider county. And then, as I say, working with national government on the idea of how we scale that in other parts of the country. But the ultimate goal is to create a digital twin of the UK, is it? Well, that's a separate project that we're also engaged in, which is as well as this living lab being about providing, you know, these services and the learning on the back of that, there are some other technology assets that we want to incubate at the same time. And one of those is the idea of how you might crowdsource digital twins Initially, it will be of the living lab itself, then at a county level, and then beyond that. And where that's all trying to get to is the idea of could one crowdsource a digital twin of the UK? And that is a properly big and bold vision. But once again, you do have to think big. It will be done incrementally. It will have value along the way. It's not like you have to get to the end before you get any value. But I think we need to shoot for those kind of things because it's what would help us optimise and run and de-risk parts of what we need to build in this country 
in a much more efficient way than we will do if we just build first and model and optimize afterwards. So I see it as a, a piece of national infrastructure, if you like, which could be incredibly valuable to this country. And can you tell us more about the specific benefits of that that you could envisage? So imagine, first of all, that you were building a big piece of national infrastructure, whether it be a new high-speed railway or whether it be another runway at an airport or whether it be a new motorway or whatever, understanding how that new piece of infrastructure, say, would work within the existing, if you like, ecosystem of the UK is very valuable. As I say, it lets you de-risk it, it lets you play with different scenarios. But then once you've built it, and this is the really exciting thing, I think, with Digital Twins, it's about how you can combine machine learning with the Digital Twin to explore ways to optimize the management of that ecosystem in ways that are, quite frankly, beyond what humans can do. And we have a great example of this in our business where we have to look after swarms of thousands of robots. Each robot produces about one gigabyte of data a day. So that's four terabytes of data per swarm per day. And that's just in one warehouse. There's no way that humans could manage, let alone optimize that behavior. So we stream all of that data to the cloud. We've built there a healthcare system that can look after those robots. But we also stream that data into our digital twin to help improve the actual operation of the swarm itself. So it's a kind of a way in which you take the data from the real world, the physical twin, and then you feed it into the digital twin, optimize the behavior, and then reconfigure the physical twin on the back of that. So what we do at a warehouse level now, imagine if you could do that at a country level. That's a pretty extraordinary thing to imagine. Is there anyone else in the world who are really heading in this direction? We hear a lot about smart city projects and sidewalk labs and so on, but is anyone else attempting to do this at this scale? There's definitely people within the UK that I've been speaking to who share this kind of vision. So uh, I'm definitely not the only crazy one. Um, I don't know about the rest of the world. I've been to Sidewalk Labs. I think that's a fascinating example. I see that much more closely as being an example of what we want to do with our living lab, although it's different. It's much more about holistic, sustainable living. I don't know if they're building a digital twin of that. Maybe they are. I haven't asked them. But there's definitely lots and lots of focus on digital twins at the moment. I mean, there's obviously companies like Rolls-Royce who model their aircraft engines at a very high level of precision in order to be able to operate those in aircraft around the world. And so there's plenty of people building digital twins for their own parts of the world, like we do in our warehouses. And we do for our routing systems, for our vans, and we do for, you know, our forecasting systems and so forth. But I'm not aware of anybody necessarily trying to build a digital twin at a national level. But I don't think we should let that stop us. Now, there's been a bit of a resistance in Toronto to building the sidewalk labs and concerns over privacy issues in particular. And your digital twin initiative, in a way, is one vast panopticon, isn't it? And it could be used for very bad purposes. So how do you ensure that it would only be used for beneficial purposes? Well, I think clearly, like in everything we do as a retailer and as a platform company, security and privacy are extremely important. And that will be, as you rightly say, true. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. 
Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. For this digital twin as well. And indeed, I've had some conversations with the likes of GCHQ and others about exactly that. So I completely agree that as with all these technologies, they can be used for good and for evil. But I am a fundamental optimist when it comes particularly to technologies like AI and robotics, that they can be the best of us as well as the worst. And I think the really exciting sort of triad is when you put digital twins in conjunction with AI and robotics, because that three-way connection is extremely powerful because digital twins let you de-risk what you would otherwise do in the physical world with robotics and let you learn in the digital world first. And when you connect machine learning to digital twins, that lets you find ways to optimize and solve that digital world that humans can't come up with. And a great example of that is what DeepMind's AlphaGo Zero did, where it learned to play Go in a few days better than any human armed only with a simulation of Go and the rules of Go. And that's the kind of stuff that we want to do by connecting machine learning to the digital twins that we've created. And I assume that the optimization of all of these activities would have massive environmental benefits as well, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I think we've got scarce resources, whether that be time and land and energy, and we want to minimize the unintended consequences in terms of pollution and climate change. I think even some of those problems that we have created for ourselves as a species like climate change and pollution, digital twins and also technologies like AI and robotics may have important roles to play in help solve some of those big problems. So that's why I'm so excited by these technologies. And that's even before we inject into the mix things like quantum computing, which will also be another important player. Is that something that falls in your remit as well, quantum computing? Are you thinking about how that can be applied in the real world? Well, we're thinking about how it will be applied potentially in Ocado. So we've done a couple of projects in this area. We're definitely not building our own quantum computer. That (laughs) is definitely beyond our resources. But there are a number of big players who are off doing that. But it's an extremely exciting technology because our business has quite a number of hard mathematical problems that we have to solve on a daily basis, like the best way to route thousands of vans around the country and also how to route thousands of robots around one of our warehouse grids. And it turns out that both of those lend themselves to what's called a quantum expression, i.e. you can express that problem in a way that a quantum computer can solve. At the moment, quantum computers aren't powerful enough to solve the kind of challenges we have. But that's just a question of time. So what we're doing is kind of getting our feet wet, exploring that technology for when it matures. Now, some quantum experts argue that it might one day be able to solve the traveling salesman problem, which is surely at the heart of a lot of what Ocado does. Could you explain what the traveling salesman problem is, how it's relevant to Ocado, and how quantum computing might one day solve this challenge? So the game that we're playing each day is we have thousands of customers ordering thousands of orders, and we have thousands of vans that are going to go on routes to drive around those customers in order to deliver their groceries. And of course, they have to do that whilst hitting the kind of one-hour slots that we deliver in. And there are an astronomical number of possible combinations of how you could do that. In fact, I think on a daily basis, there are more possible routes that we could drive than there are atoms in the universe. So it's a very big problem that 
we throw a lot of computing power at. And the traveling sales problem is about, is there a way in which to optimize, if you like, those routes in order to produce the best possible solution? And as I say, that's a challenge that we solve both on the roads and with the robots in our warehouse on a daily basis. And if we could have quantum computers that could do that, we could do it faster and arguably better because you never get to the perfect solution. It's like paying past the parcel. You know, you keep on trying to solve the problem until you run out of time. And at that point, you go, well, that's the best solution we can come up with. Now, because we throw a lot of computing power at it and we're doing it all the time, we come up with very, very good solutions. But we could always come up with better ones. And that's why we're always chasing faster and faster computers, whether it be conventional computers or clusters of GPUs or in the future quantum computers. So the more efficient delivery of avocados can be added to the very long list of issues that quantum computing can solve. Absolutely. I'd like to talk a bit about the culture of innovation, which I find fascinating. At Google, they famously appointed Astro Tello as the captain of Moonshine shots and they have a very strong view about how moonshots should be developed separately from the main organization at google are you doing something analogous at ocado yes we are a lot of the innovation that we rely on actually happens within our core engineering teams who are building things like you know our card smart platform so that is just business as usual including a bunch of stuff there that frankly many organizations would consider research but we just consider it bread and butter. Then we have business-sponsored research, which is things like robotic picking and the applications of AI and machine learning that we're involved in and simulation and things like that. And then we have another department called 10x, which is off placing the bets in terms of innovation the business might not place because it's a very non-linear process innovation. You know, you can't always pick winners. You can't always see the right path to get to a solution. Sometimes you have to make leaps of faith and back horses that you don't quite know if they're going to go where you want them to. And therefore, that department is off doing a kind of a spread bet across quite a number of different fronts. But even that wasn't enough. And that's what led to us forming the office of the CTO, which is really kicking that up to a whole division that is now focused on exploring a much further out time horizon, using things including like living labs and digital twins, but also exploring spin-out applications of the technologies we've created, and even starting to think about what lies beyond that. What would be the next thing in Ocado's future, even beyond spin-outs? What might the warehouses that we might build in 15 years' time look like? So it's about the technological future-proofing of the business. But why it, I would agree with Google that it kind of needs to be structurally separate is that it's just an inevitability. As an organization grows, you know, however innovative it is, and Ocado is very innovative, what Christensen said in The Innovator's Dilemma and the other books is just, it's an inescapable fact. The organizational antibodies within an organization get stronger. The ideas about what is an acceptable new idea or is just too weird and wacky, the filtering process becomes stronger. And if you allow it to, it will constrain what your future ambitions are. And therefore, we felt that the way to do it is to structurally inoculate ourselves against <laughs> those antibodies by creating a separate entity that is even in a separate building it has different ways of working, it has a different mission and approaches problems in very different ways in order to guard against what might otherwise become more tunnel vision about what the future holds. 
And that's not an end point. I can imagine in the future we'll have to do it again. My division, Octo, will perhaps get overwhelmed by antibodies and now somebody else will have to think about how to do the next step. But at the moment, it seems to be working well and it's allowing us to focus much further out, but at the same time, not distracting the core teams from what is absolutely Ocado's bread and butter in terms of building smart platforms. And also in the UK, supporting what our retail business is doing, which, of course, looking forwards now is all about this very exciting partnership that we signed with Marks & Spencer. So Christensen and others have argued that there's a big distinction between incremental innovation, which is the natural extension of what a corporate does in its daily activities, and disruptive innovation, which is what you're talking about. So you do think you have to separate those two activities? Both are important. Lots of the improvements that we drive are incremental, inevitably, and I don't think anyone would suggest that you can spend your days just doing disruption because a lot of it is about feeding back everything that you learn each day into doing what you do tomorrow, hopefully, and the week after even better, and that will be largely incremental. But the big leaps that we've made, which is actually not really about disruption, it's about self-disruption, have been crucial. Arguably, we've disrupted ourselves once and we're about to hopefully do it again. The first time was about how we took our first-generation warehouses, which were arguably the biggest, most complex, and probably some of the most sophisticated of their kind in the world, and we could have just rested on our laurels and just gone, let's build more of those. But we could see why we needed something better, more scalable, more modular, particularly for our international business. And so we went off and invented something that now is even better. But if you're not a Cardo, you'd still look at those warehouses and think, wow, they're churning out hundreds of thousands of orders each week. And that's a continual process. We never stop obsessing on what we would say is the holes in the Swiss cheese. You know, we don't rest on our laurels. We always think that what we've produced is not good enough. And we have lists of ideas of how to improve things, which we never get to the bottom of, however much we grow our engineering teams, and we're growing them fast, because new ideas just keep on coming onto the list that are even better. I'm very intrigued by these possible spin-outs from Ocado. What kind of things do you think they would be in the future? I mean, can you imagine new technologies that you're focusing on and adapting that would create the germ of a new business that you can then spin out? What kind of areas are you talking about? So we talked a little bit about this at our last results announcement in February, and Tim Steiner, on his penultimate slide, put up something that we affectionately call the Wheel of Fortune, which is a picture of some of the spin-outs taken from a much longer list, many of which we can't talk about for obvious commercial reasons. But some of the ones on that list that we talked about were ideas like vertical farming or baggage handling or massive automated car parks or container ports, rail freight, parcel sortation, things like that. And it's a long list. We obviously can't attack all of them at the same time. We've been off patenting ideas in those areas for quite some time now. And now that we've formed Octo, we can actually go off and work on those. And just last week, we signed two deals in the vertical farming area in order to progress that, which we're very excited about because we think that we can take our automation and robotics, AI machine learning, simulation, digital twinning capability, and combine that with the knowledge around things like plant science and growing to take vertical farming to another level of productivity, scale, and efficiency, which is what needs to happen if we're going to grow meaningful amounts of food in these vertical farms. And this happens to be one that's actually very synergistic with Ocado's core business. Not all of them are, you know, things like you know, container ports is arguably quite far away. But vertical farms is very synergistic because 
If you imagine building a warehouse that is your fulfillment and distribution machine, and obviously we've built many of those, we've got to build 28 of those around the world in the next three years for our partners. If you could have next to those a vertical farm, an automated vertical farm that was growing the food, and then a dark kitchen alongside it that is preparing the food, and obviously we made an investment a couple of months ago, maybe now, in Karakuri, which is on that mission. Now you have an amazing machine that is growing, preparing, and selling and distributing food. And in so doing, is potentially doing it much closer to the customer, much greater freshness, no pesticides, much more efficient use of water. And ultimately, if you combine that with what we are doing in terms of immediacy, you can imagine getting something from the farm to your kitchen table in literally a matter of hours, which is just a step change in terms of freshness. And that would be your takeaway delivery would be delivered by a drone to complete the circle. Well, that's a whole different question. I mean, drones are a truly exciting technology, and we already use drones for things like surveying. If you want to get above our robots in our warehouses, the only thing that can fly in that 60-centimeter space is a small drone. And we can envisage in the future using drones not just for surveying and monitoring like we do now, but also things like automated maintenance. If one of your CCTV cameras breaks or a light bulb breaks, it would be great if a drone could perch and unscrew the old one and screw in the new one without people having to go anywhere near it. And our facilities are huge. You know, these warehouses are multiple times the size of football pitches. You know, it's like six times the the size of a football pitch and there's lots of parts of those warehouses that it's difficult for humans to get close so that's very exciting for our general merchandise business we could imagine using drones to deliver one or two items but i think much more challenging is the idea that drones are going to be carrying 32 kilograms of groceries over our heads anytime soon for a number of reasons first of all Drone technology isn't quite there yet in terms of the distances they would have to cover without using a fixed-wing drone. And, you know, the battery technologies need to improve in order to allow them to fly long enough. But the really difficult challenges are to do with things like safety. How are we going to land this payload near to customers? Because the kind of size of drone that could deliver 32 kilograms is not the kind of thing that is going to land anywhere near a human. And then also the whole challenge of things like automated air traffic control corridors, which you're going to need to have built before thousands of drones are swarming around a city like London. And this is why we're involved in the aerospace deal that was signed last year as the industry lead for drones in the UK in order to help do this. It's why drones are part of our living lab plans, because we think there's lots to learn there, just as there is with autonomous vehicles on the road. But I think it's a question of using this technology for what it's great for now and over time those capabilities will improve as the technology matures must be quite fun inventing the future isn't it i think inventing the future is great fun i think if my had my life again maybe i would have gone down an inventing route but actually i i love what i do i joined ocado 13 years ago to do a one-year consultancy project i never thought i would do 13 years i thought i would go off and do another startup but what's kept me there is this extraordinary vision culture, the extraordinary people that we have there that we're adding to that gene pool all the time. And it's very much like a startup, even though arguably it's a kind of a slightly unruly adolescent. And I think that's what keeps it exciting. I often describe working at Ocado as a bit like being on a roller coaster that's under construction. You just never know what you're going to find around the next corner. There's a never-ending supply of hard problems to solve. There's an ever-expanding vision, and I see absolutely no reason why that's about to stop anytime soon. We must end it there, but thank you very much, Paul. Pleasure. 
Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon. 